0: invite you to turn your bibles now to the 69th psalm psalm 69 Uh, over the years uh, what we've done usually on wednesday nights is try to take 10 psalms or so at a time during the summer or the fall and working our way through the entire book eventually and this summer and fall we've been working our way through Psalm 61 through 70 on wednesday nights um, but I'm wanting to start Ephesians coming up this Wednesday, and so I'm going to move the last two of these psalms over to these Sunday mornings, uh, in particular Psalm 69 to date. And as we read the psalm, you'll find that David's in a familiar spot. David is in difficulty. He's facing opposition, as was so often the case in his life. And as was so often the case in his life, in facing those things, he's pouring out his heart here in a psalm, in a song, a poem, really a prayer. It's a lengthy prayer, um, but I hope that you'll stay with me as we read it through from beginning to end. Psalm 69, it's inscribed for the choir director according to Shoshanim, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I've sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord, God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress." Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell in it. Father, um, we trust that you have brought us to this very moment and this very psalm today for a reason. God, you know the cries of our hearts You know the needs of our souls, and we believe that you intend to meet them and to woo us to yourself in faith this morning from Psalm 69. So do that, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Many Christians, maybe some of you are among them, um, would say that the Psalms are their favorite book of the Bible. At least their favorite book for personal Bible reading, and I'm sure there are a number of reasons for that. But there's one primary reason I think so many people find so much help from the Psalms, and that's because the Psalms seem so often to say exactly what we want to say. Have you found that to be true? They say exactly what we were thinking. The Psalms don't often or don't usually give us direct instructions Like, for instance, the New Testament epistles. The Psalms aren't usually saying do this or believe this or stop thinking like that. There's some of that in the Psalms, but that's not the main thing. The main thing that the Psalms do is they record the heart cries of the people who wrote them. The heart cries of God's people. And because the Psalms record the heart cries of God's people... God's people who read them, it seems to me, often find ourselves reading along and we bump across a line or a verse in a psalm and say, that's exactly, God, how I feel right now. That's exactly what I wanted to say. And I believe God designed the psalms this way. I believe he did this on purpose. I believe that God wrote these psalms or had David and others write them in order to put the words of prayer and praise into our mouths. Because sometimes we may be feeling something or thinking something and we're not quite sure how to articulate it back to the Lord or we're not quite sure if anyone else has ever felt what we're feeling or maybe sometimes we're feeling something and we're not sure it's something that we ought to actually say to God but then we read along in a psalm and we come across something we say that's exactly the burden of my heart thank you God for this psalm I'm going to pray it back to you even right now I'll give you a personal example of this. This week, as I was preparing for this morning, I really found myself coming to the end of the week with no direction as to this sermon. Uh, No idea what I really needed to say, what uh, you needed to hear, no idea what God wanted for us this morning. I had sort of a spiritual writer's block, if you will. And it's very disturbing to me when that happens. And so I was looking at Psalm 69 and thinking this is the passage for Sunday morning, but I don't really have anything to say about this. Maybe I should go to another passage, and it was just tied up in knots. And it was that way all the way until one thirty yesterday afternoon. I was looking at this psalm, and I was praying, God, please give me something for your people tomorrow, but still really directionless. But as I read through the psalm again, verse 17, all of a sudden leapt off of the page, and God spoke to me where David says, Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what I want to say to you, God. I know I'm not in the same situation David was in, but I need an answer. I need an answer quickly. I don't know what to do. Please come in my distress and help me. And God did answer that prayer. I'm certain many of you have had very similar experiences as you've read your way through the Psalms. If you haven't yet, then keep on reading the Psalms and you'll be blessed. God will put the words of prayer and praise on your lips. You'll find yourself identifying so clearly with David and the other psalmists if you just give yourself to working your way through these wonderful prayers. And I say all that because that's something of the direction that we're going to take this morning as we look at Psalm 69. We're going to look at this psalm, and we're going to see, of course, that David is speaking for himself. He's speaking about his own difficulties out of his own heart. But we're also going to see this morning that, in a way, David speaks here in Psalm 69 for every believer. David's words in Psalm 69 in many cases, anticipate the cries of our own hearts. We could say, in many cases, exactly what David is saying this morning. And maybe God will put some of his words on our lips in our own cries of prayer or perhaps praise as well. And he's not just anticipating the cries of our hearts, but the cries of God's people everywhere. This psalm was written by David, but it almost... have been penned by millions of other believers the world over who've struggled and who've cried out to God for help, maybe some even in this room. So Psalm 69, to me, it seems like all the psalms really is a psalm for every believer. It's a psalm that all of us can identify and many of its verses we could repeat to God verbatim. And we're going to think that through this morning under four headings psalm for every believer. And I want to say to you first, and most obviously, in Psalm 69, David speaks for himself. He speaks for us, and we'll come to that, but he speaks, first of all, for himself. And I say that because there's a danger when we read the Bible, especially when we read the Psalms, that we may jump immediately to personal application. We may read Psalm 69 and immediately start thinking about what this passage means for me. But I've discovered that it's really important for us to find out first what it means not for me, but for the person who wrote it and for the original people who were intended to hear it. In other words, I told you that I found Psalm 69, 17 very helpful to me this week in my struggles about sermon prep. But it's important that I realize that Psalm 69, 17 is not about sermon prep. And it's not really, first of all, about me. It applies to me. And every verse in the Bible applies to me and applies to you. But if I want to understand a given verse or passage properly, and if I want to make sure I apply it properly to myself, I need to first understand how that verse or passage applied at the time that it was written. And so I say, while most of us could have written some of the verses in this psalm, perhaps, the fact is we didn't write them. David wrote them. And we need to understand what David was feeling, what David was thinking, what David was experiencing when he wrote these verses. So let me help you think that through. David, when he penned this psalm, was speaking for himself, writing down his own prayers, his own cries to God, responding to his own trouble. So what were they? What was David writing about? What was he praying about? What was he weeping about? Well, he doesn't tell us specifically, does he? Sometimes he does. Sometimes at the very beginning of the psalm he says, now I wrote this psalm at such and such a time when so-and-so was doing X, Y, and Z. But he doesn't do that here. And so we don't know exactly what David was dealing with. But if we just look at what he says about his troubles and about his feelings, we can at least get some hints. So just notice some hints with me. David's writing this about his own life. What was going on? Well, notice in verse 1 he says he feels threatened. In verse 4, he tells us that there are people who hate him without cause. In verse 8, he's feeling estranged even from his own family. In verse 12, he's being slandered and mocked in the city gate. In verse 20, he's dealing with his suffering virtually all by himself. And we could notice other things. There are a few time periods in David's life where this might apply, but probably this psalm comes from the time period when David was being pursued by Saul the king. You may remember Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was not a good king. And Samuel, the prophet, came along and actually told David, you are going to be the next king. And you may remember the story. David did nothing but good to Saul. David never usurped anything from Saul. David never ran around saying, I'm going to be the next king. He did nothing but good for Saul. He, on Saul's behalf, slew the giant Goliath when he was just a teenager. He served as Saul's personal musician as a young man. David proved himself as a loyal soldier in the Israelite army. He was married to Saul's own daughter, the best friend of Saul's own son, a zealous worshiper of the Lord, the kind of man any king or any president would want in his cabinet, a loyal, faithful, gifted person who loved the Lord. And yet Saul was slinging spears at David's head, and David was having to run for his life. And that's probably the background out of which David writes things like verse 4, those who hate me without cause, those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies and so on. Probably he's thinking about and living through this time where he's fleeing in the deserts and hiding from King Saul, his own father-in-law. And it's always important to remember the background to a psalm like this one. When we remember what David was dealing with, when we remember that he was hiding in caves and out in the wilderness, we remember that the Psalms are not just beautiful, poetic words that were meant to be written in nice calligraphy on a Christian greeting card. Now, that's wonderful if they are, but that's not how they were originally written, was it? Many of the Psalms were written while David was hiding in a cave. Many of the Psalms, if we had the original copies, we would see that there were tears and maybe even blood stained on the parchment where David wrote. Some of the Psalms may have been written inside a tent on the edge of a battlefield as David got his men ready for the onslaught of Saul or later David's son Absalom who rebelled against him. The Psalms, what I'm saying is the Psalms have blood and sweat and tears mixed in with the ink that they're written with, And at the very least, remembering that means that we ought not to take them lightly or out of context. And what I mean by that is this... I can take Psalm 69, verse 17 upon my lips, as I did yesterday afternoon, and I can apply it to myself. But when I do that, let me remember that when David prayed about his distresses, when David cried out, Lord, answer me quickly, he was not sitting in a nice air-conditioned office in front of a laptop. He was running for his life and remembering the background of the Psalms that David wrote this for himself sometimes will serve to put my own struggles in perspective. And while I can use David's words and even feel them, I can do it without feeling sorry for myself. And yet, on the other hand, when we realize how much distress David was in, when we find ourselves in really stressful situations, we can say, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. David was here crying tears onto the page as he wrote this psalm. And as I cry my tears, I know that someone understands. And someone knows how to talk to God in a situation like this. So it's good to know the background. That's the first thing. David wrote Psalm 69 for himself, and we need to let him speak. But as I said, David really does speak for us as well. Every follower of Jesus, I think, can in some way, even if it's a small one, identify with David's words here. And I want to say, secondly, that there's one group of Christians who can especially identify with the words here in Psalm 69. So first, David speaks these words for himself. But secondly, David speaks in Psalm 69 for the persecuted church, the persecuted church. It's true that I can identify with David's words in very real ways. There are times when I find myself saying, verse 17, don't hide your face from your servant. There are times when you might say, those who sit in the gate are making fun of me, verse 12. Surely we can all identify with verse 5, and we'll come back to that. But we remember that David didn't write this psalm in the calm of his palace. He didn't write it. In a group like this where we're all together and things are relatively safe and calm, David wrote this psalm, it would seem, on the run in a cave or maybe in a secret bedroom in someone's house who was hiding him with a sword on the table next to him as he wrote. And I simply remind you that David wrote this psalm on the run as he was fleeing from his life so that I might remind you that there are thousands of God's people in other places in the world this morning who could not only write very similar words to these, but who, when they wrote them, would also be writing them from some hiding place, or from a prison cell, or from an underground location. We have brothers and sisters all over the world this morning who could literally say the kinds of things David says about himself here. Some of them could literally speak of themselves, verse 33, as prisoners I think about David and Tiffany in the house uh, church that meets there in their apartment. And I tell you that the people in their house church could literally say with David in verse 8, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. Some of them have literally lost their families because they have trusted in Jesus. Or the Christians in China today who perhaps somewhere, someplace in that vast country have found a gang of armed policemen surrounding their building could literally say, perhaps verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs on my head. There are people who have literally run for their lives just like David because of their faith. And there are brothers and our sisters. And like David... As I said, they're hated and mistreated for no other reason than that they are faithful to God. That's what David says. Did you notice that in verse 7 through 9? It wasn't just a political problem that David was facing. It wasn't just a power struggle. He says in verse 7, Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Why? Verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. He's saying, the people really want to persecute you, God, but they're persecuting me instead. I'm being persecuted because of my zeal for your house, for your glory. I'm suffering simply because I'm faithful to God. That was true of David, wasn't it? He didn't just say that. It was actually true when we read the story. Why did Saul hate David so much? Why did he try to kill David? Well, the surface reason was jealousy. You remember David had become a mighty warrior and the women in the, in the cities began to sing Saul has slain his thousands but David has slain his ten thousands. And you can imagine how that might make a king think twice. David had slain Goliath when Saul was afraid even to go out and fight him. David had become a great commander and warrior. But why did David do those things that made Saul jealous? Was he trying to make Saul jealous? Was he trying to upstage Saul? No, David was always the first to defer to Saul, to honor Saul. Why did David do it? Was it for personal gain? No, it seems that even after he killed Goliath and became this hero in his country, he tried to go back home. They wouldn't let him go back. They said, no, you're going to be a part of the cabinet now. But he at first tried to just go back home and tend the sheep. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. Why did he fight so bravely? Why did he fight so well? Well, it's for God's sake, just like he says here in verse seven. Do you remember why David fought Goliath? Why David became this hero to begin with? It wasn't for national pride. It wasn't because, boy, my brothers are out there in the army and if somebody doesn't do something, they're all going to die. That's not why he did it. Why did David fight Goliath? Well, he tells us because Goliath had defamed the living God. Goliath had mocked God And David had a zeal for God's house, verse 9, a zeal for God's glory, and he would not let that stand. And so he did what he did and he became a hero for it. And his brothers, you may remember in that incident, hated him for it. His brothers hated him for what he was doing. And maybe that's what he's speaking about in verse 8. And his king, as we've been saying, became jealous of him because of it. And David had to flee for his life. And all of it was because someone was mocking God. And David said, I cannot let this stand. And he stood up and he did what was right. And that's exactly the way it is for our brothers and sisters in China in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Iran and in so many other places their families disown them verse 8 their rulers verse 4 would destroy them simply because they have a zeal for God's house so this is a wonderful psalm i say for the persecuted church david speaks on their behalf david puts the words of prayer right onto their lips And if we are ever persecuted, this might be a place that we would turn in order to teach us how to pray. But let me say also that this is a wonderful psalm, not just for the persecuted church, but for those of us who aren't persecuted, but who love those who are. Do you love your brothers and sisters in the world who suffer for their faith? We really have brothers and sisters who could pray verses 10 and 11 literally. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. We have brothers and sisters who could say exactly what David says in verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me and so on. They can literally say this. But may it never be that they would ever have to say what David said at the end of verse 20. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. We who are not persecuted, we who are not living exactly in Psalm 69, at least in that way, ought to remember those who are. Pray for them. Give to support them. I've encouraged you before and I encourage you again to get the newsletter of the Voice of the Martyrs and pray and give and remember those who suffer, those whose families disown them, those whose rulers would destroy them simply because they stand for Jesus. So David speaks most obviously to himself here in Psalm 69. He speaks loud and clear on behalf of the persecuted among God's people. Many people in many places, as I say, could pray this psalm almost verbatim this morning. But thirdly, I want you to see that David speaks in this psalm for you and for me as well. He speaks on our behalf. He puts words on the page that we can take onto our lips as well. Aren't there times when you could lift some of David's lines here and put them right into your own prayers? I hope that as we read along a few minutes ago, you could say, boy, that's exactly how I felt or how I feel perhaps this morning. Aren't there times in your life where you could say Answer me, verse 16, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good according to the greatness of your compassion. Turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Haven't there been times where you could say that? Maybe you thought it wasn't okay to ask God to answer you quickly, but here David does. It's an amazing thing. There have been times, surely, in some of our lives where we could say exactly what David says in verse 3, I am weary. With my crying, my throat is parched. Surely, though we're not running for our lives like David was, there are situations for us in which we have shed many, many tears. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's not knowing when the next paycheck is going to come or from where. Maybe it's the phone call in the middle of the night. Maybe it's standing there over the casket of a loved one. Maybe it's hearing that word cancer or seeing a very sick child laying on the bed at Children's Hospital. There are times where our lives are overflowed with tears like David's was. And while I was careful to point out that when I was praying, verse 17, yesterday I was in a plush American office, not nearly as bad off as David was or as our persecuted brothers and sisters are and while there are times i need to remember that and put my sufferings in perspective it's also true is it not that you don't have to be in a cave you don't have to be in the third world you don't have to be in physical danger to have a broken heart and to be able to say verse 20 i am so sick and many of us know that firsthand some even this morning Indeed, I think many of us might actually choose to be on the run for our lives like David was than to find out our child has leukemia or to stand over the grave of our parents who didn't know Jesus or to stand over the grave of a spouse. I think we would trade those things sometimes for being on the run. And in that day when we face those things for which we would gladly trade places with almost anybody in the world we will do well if we can turn to a psalm like this one and begin to say the kinds of things to the Lord that David says. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. And What that means is that Psalm 69 and all of the psalms can be a wonderful well for us when it comes time to pray. Sometimes life hurts so bad that you close your eyes to pray and you simply can't get anything out. You ever been there? You wish you could pray, but nothing will come. Your mind is too numb. Your heart is too broken. The tears are falling too hard. And the Bible tells us that when we get to that place where we can't get the words of prayer out of our mouths, there are at least two resources for us. One, according to Romans 8, is that when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit will intercede for us with groanings too deep for words and God will understand what the Holy Spirit is saying because the Holy Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. Sometimes when you can't pray, you just can't pray and the Holy Spirit will do the praying for you. But sometimes when you can't pray, you can't think of what you ought to say or you don't know what you ought to say, the Psalms may be the Holy Spirit's remedy. You turn to the Psalms and you find the Holy Spirit through the Psalms putting just the right words into your mouth. It's an amazing well, an amazing resource for prayer that we have in this book of the Bible. Let me point out that we may also have occasion to pray, not just verse 3 when we're weeping, but we may also have occasion to pray something like David prayed in verse 7 as well, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. Some of us, of course, may someday face a much harsher degree of persecution. Some of us may live through Psalm 69, 4. We may go somewhere as a missionary, be imprisoned for it, or be cut down like Cheryl Beckett, some of you heard about a year or so ago from Owensville, right down the road who was killed in Afghanistan. Some of us may have that in our future, but most of us will face a more subtle form of suffering for Jesus. Most of us won't be able to say that our enemies would destroy us, verse 4, but many of us will have to live through verse 7. Dishonor has covered my face, and it's for your sake, Lord. Isn't that what Paul said? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Maybe not always the kind that drives us into hiding. Maybe not the kind that involves blood or tears, but we will suffer. If we have a zeal for God's house, as David did, verse 9, maybe it'll be true that our family will estrange themselves from us, as David's did in verse 8. Or just not come around as often. Some of you know what that's like. Maybe it will be that people will simply treat you with dishonor or second class because of your faith in the Lord, verse 7. Maybe your co-workers will talk about you behind your back because you won't laugh at their dirty jokes. She's such a goody two-shoes. She thinks she's better than the rest of us. Maybe your boss won't promote you because you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and you're not going to do overtime on the Lord's Day. Maybe it will be that you'll try to share the gospel and someone will slam the door in your face or even mock you as you try to speak to them of Jesus. All these things happen to normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill American Christians, don't they? So, we may not live through Psalm 69 4, but we will live through Psalm 69 7 if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. And here's David, simply trying to serve the Lord, simply trying to stand up for what's right, and Saul, the very first person who ought to stand with him, becomes jealous and angry about it. Perhaps Saul felt convicted. Perhaps he saw David marching out there with his sling and his five stones, just a young man, or maybe even a teenager. And said to himself, why am I not that zealous for the Lord? Why don't I stand up for God? Why am I not this brave? Why don't I do something? But instead of doing something, he became jealous. And the same thing will happen to us as we simply try to serve the Lord. People will be convicted. Why am I not like that? And the easiest way to deflect conviction is to make fun of the messenger. Or to try your best to make life difficult for them. And so we will all probably have occasion to pray verses like verse 7. And we'll certainly have occasion to pray verses like Psalm 69, 5 and 6, won't we? O oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. I find this instructive. Here's David being persecuted for his faith, for his zeal for God. He is a zealous man, and he's being persecuted for it. And in the very same breath, he's confessing his sins. Isn't that something? Just because David was zealous for God's house, zealous enough even to be persecuted for it, didn't mean that he wasn't struggling with sin in some other area of his life. We don't know what the sin was here, but he obviously was struggling with it. And we might assume something like this about ourselves. If I'm zealous enough to be persecuted for Jesus, surely I'm not at a point in my life where I need to be on my face in repentance. I'm at the high point right now. Repentance is something for another day. But it wasn't so with David. David was far from thinking like that. In the middle of his zeal, in the middle of being persecuted for his zeal, he is humbling himself in the dust and saying, God, you know my wrongs. They're not hidden from you. And we should... Speak that way, should think that way. So let me just say to you, if there's no other verse in Psalm 69 that leaps off the page to you, if there's no other verse here that makes you say, that's exactly what I was thinking, at least we can say that about verse 5. And we can also pray with David in verses 30 and following. We're still speaking about how David speaks on our behalf, how we can take his words on our lips, and we can certainly take the words in verses 30 and following on our lips. David's been crying out for help throughout this whole psalm, asking God to intervene. But then you'll notice that in verse 30, his tone changes immediately. He's weeping, he's crying, and then his tone changes. And in verse 30, he's magnifying God with thanksgiving. Why? Why? Well, because he knows, verse 33, that the Lord hears the needy and does not despise the prayers of his people. And so he he changes his tone and begins already to thank the Lord in advance for how God is going to hear his prayers. And you'll notice in verse 32, he calls on fellow believers to join him in doing the same. And in verse 34, he even calls on heaven and earth to join him in praising the Lord. And I just wish that I could pray with this kind of faith. Yes, let me weep and cry and moan before the Lord, but let me have enough faith before I say amen to thank him, verse 30, for how he's going to answer, to believe, verse 33, that he will hear. What kind of prayer is it to weep before the Lord and pour out our heart before him and call out to him for help and deliverance and then to get up and not be sure if he'll really answer but notice that David thanked God before he ever got up off his knees, verse 30, because he believed, he even knew, verse 33, that God would hear his cries and that God would do him good. And I'll just confess, I don't often pray with that kind of faith. I'll take you back to 1.30 p.m. yesterday. I had no sermon, and I prayed verse 17. And I didn't go on and pray verse 30. Verse 30. I prayed verse 17, Lord, don't hide your face from me, answer me quickly. And then I got up for my prayer and I thought and I fretted and I worried some more. I wasn't like David. I believed enough to pray verse 17, which is better than at previous points, perhaps in my life. But I want to have enough faith that I could pray verse 17. And before I ever leave my knees, I can go ahead and pray verse 30 as well. God, thank you in advance because I know that you hear the cries of your people and you answer. So then, Psalm 69 speaks, as we've been saying, for you and me. We can pray right along with David as he weeps in verse 3, as he's maligned in verse 7, as he confesses in verse 5, as he asks for help in verse 17, as he offers God thanks in advance in verse 30. And we can pray with him in so many similar verses in between. And let me ask one more question before we leave this third point. Yes, we can pray with David. Yes, we can take his words upon our lips, but can we do that with verses 22 to 28? Listen to how David prays for his enemies there. Verse 22, may their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and so on in verse 28 may they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous can we pray like that doesn't sound like a very christian thing to pray does it jesus taught us to pray for those who persecute us didn't he but did he have in mind that we pray like this maybe maybe not these verses are in the bible aren't they I'm not sure I know the answer, and I don't want to get bogged down on that question, but just notice a few things so that you don't get stuck on these verses. Notice, first of all, that David wrote this psalm as the next anointed king, not as an average citizen. And so it may well be that when he prays that God would wipe out his enemies, that he's not praying out of a personal vindictiveness, but as any godly king might pray for military victory over those who are unjust in their attacks. This may be more of the prayer of a king for his country and on behalf of his country than it is a prayer of personal revenge. I think that it is. And then note well also that though David may have prayed this way about Saul and his regime, David never actually did anything to take matters into his own hands, did he? He had two occasions where he had Saul asleep right at his feet, once in a cave, once in a camp, and both times he refused to take personal revenge. So whatever we do with these prayers, verses 22 through 28 are not licensed for revenge, surely. The New Testament paradigm is to do good to those who persecute you, isn't it? And to pray for them, and David surely did that, even though these prayers sound a little bit odd to our ears. Not sure we can pray like David did, since we're average citizens, and so probably for us, the clearest light on how we should pray for our enemies is not to go first to Psalm 69, but to go to Luke 23, 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. So what have we said so far? David here in this psalm speaks for himself. He speaks for the persecuted church, and in many ways, his sayings, his words could find their way onto our lips as well. But finally, and really most importantly, I want you to notice that in Psalm 69, David speaks for Jesus as well. He speaks on behalf of Jesus. I wonder if you notice that some of David's sentences here in this psalm are taken up by New Testament authors and applied to the Lord Jesus, let me point them out to you. First of all, there at the end of verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's quoted in Psalm 15:3. And Paul, or excuse me, in Romans 15:3, and Paul says that was Jesus. The reason why we shouldn't retaliate is because Jesus even was persecuted on God's behalf. He says Psalm is about Jesus. And then over in John chapter 2, you remember the story. Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem, and the people had turned it into a marketplace. They were selling doves. They were selling sheep. They had a coin exchange all set up. They had used the presence of the sacrificial system just as an opportunity to make a buck, the same way that many people do with religion on television and in person today. But as you remember, Jesus turned over the tables that day. He emptied the cash registers onto the floor. He drove the businessmen out with a whip. Strange picture of Jesus, but a biblical one. And the disciples were dumbfounded, weren't they? You can imagine if you saw Jesus, gentle, kind, humble Jesus, always healing the sick and and putting the children on his knees. And all of a sudden he's turning tables over and throwing money all over the place and taking a whip in his hand and driving people out of the temple. The disciples didn't know what to do. But then John tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, 9. Now that's odd, isn't it? Psalm 69.9, both the first half and the second half are quoted in the New Testament. But when you just read them, they don't speak about Jesus directly, do they? David does not say that he's prophesying about the coming Messiah. He seems to be very clearly speaking about himself. And yet the disciples remembered this verse and said Psalm sixty nine nine is about Jesus. And we see the same sort of thing done with Psalm 69 21. Read that verse. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, let me just turn to the book of John again and read you the account of Jesus' crucifixion as we find it in John 19, just three verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, those are powerful verses on a number of fronts, but the question this morning is, why did Jesus say, I thirst? Well, he was really thirsty, of course. But John also says that Jesus said that to fulfill the Scripture. What Scripture? Is there a Scripture that says, when he's about to die, the Messiah will say, I thirst? No, there's not. So what does John mean when he says, in order to fulfill the Scripture, Jesus said, I thirst? What Scripture is he talking about? Evidently, he's talking about Psalm 69, 21. Because when Jesus said, I thirst, John saw... Psalm sixty nine twenty one being reenacted before his eyes, they gave me vinegar to drink. And apparently John understood that Psalm 69, 21 was a prophecy about Jesus and a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. And in order that it might, in order that Jesus might be given vinegar or sour wine to drink, Psalm 69, 21, he said, I thirst. Now, it's awfully strange, isn't it? the way that the New Testament uses Psalm 69. If we had been reading Psalm 69 at any point in Old Testament history, if we had been reading Psalm 69 in the days just before Jesus' death even, we would probably have no idea that verse 9 and verse 21 were messianic prophecies. Perhaps we've spent this whole time this morning looking at the psalm and it never occurred to you that there were messianic prophecies mixed in with what we've been saying. These verses, verse 9 and 21, come across really as simple descriptions of David's own sufferings. They don't seem at all like they are meant to be prophecies about the coming Savior, and yet Jesus and his disciples treated these verses as exactly that, as prophecies about himself. And the question is, how can they do that? How do they know that these were prophecies, and how can they treat them as though they were when it doesn't seem obvious at all on the page? Once again, I'm not sure that I know all the answers, but here's what I do know. I do know that as we've been saying, Psalm 69 is in some ways descriptive of every follower of God. There are parts of this psalm that we ourselves could repeat verbatim. And if we can identify with David, if we can say what he says, then surely Jesus could as well. Indeed, I believe that one reason why David's life was so extreme, one reason why David experienced so many highs and so much exhilaration and one reason why he also has so many lows, problems without and sins within is because God was shaping David into the man who would write the prayers for several thousand years worth of God's people. God allowed David's life to fluctuate so much so that we would have his prayers And if God so ordered David's life that you and I might take David's words on our lips, how much more might we expect him to have ordered David's life to help us understand what Jesus experienced? How much more might Jesus take David's words on his lips and say, this is really about me? Because remember, the whole Bible, Jesus said, is about him. In other words, we aren't the only ones that David speaks for. In the Psalms, he speaks, even more importantly, for Jesus as well. And this is important to remember. It will enrich your reading of the Psalms. When I go to the Bible's prayer book, the Psalms, the Bible's hymn book, yes, it's true that I oftentimes can take David's cries upon my own lips. But more than that, I ought to read the Psalms asking for what they may have to teach me about Jesus. So much of what David's experiencing in the Psalms, his elation and joy in God, and then the depths of his suffering were a foreshadowing of Jesus. And if you read the Psalms looking for it, I think you'll see it. David and his life are a foreshadowing a type of Christ. And that's true of these Psalms, even when the New Testament doesn't directly quote them. For instance, though verse 20 is not directly quoted in the New Testament, I think you'll agree with me that it's a pretty fair description of what Jesus experienced when in the garden of Gethsemane, all his disciples forsook him and fled. Don't you think Jesus could have taken David's words upon his lips in verse 20? I looked for sympathy, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. And could not Jesus have taken verse 8 upon his lips when his own brothers came to him earlier in his ministry to tell him that they thought he was off his head? Could Jesus not have said, I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons? Why? Verse 9, because zeal for your house has consumed me. Do you see my point? The Old Testament and maybe especially the Psalms are filled with hints of the Savior. And we should read them exactly that way. We're often tempted, as I said at the beginning, to go to the scriptures and immediately ask, what does this passage say to me? And that's not a bad question, but it's not the first question. The first question is, what does this passage say? And then the next question, and maybe the most vital question is, what does this passage say about Jesus? How do David's struggles in Psalm 69 remind me of Jesus, the son of David? The Bible is really all about him, especially the Old Testament, clearly. So let me conclude by asking a final question. Yes, David suffered so much, and he wrote his sufferings down, as we said, partly to help us understand Jesus' sufferings. That's what I've been saying, isn't it? David suffered so that he could write his sufferings down so that we could understand Jesus' sufferings. The question then to conclude with is, why did Jesus have to suffer so much in the first place? Many of you know the answer. Why was he so thirsty that day on the cross? Why was he on a cross to begin with? Why did they mock Jesus by giving him vinegar to drink instead of water? Why was there no one there to comfort him, verse 20, or to take him down from the cross? Why? Well, because that's what we deserve for our sins, isn't it? Isn't that what the Bible says? We deserve to hang on the cross, but he did it for us. We deserve to be in hell where Luke 16, there will not even be one cool drop of water to put on the tips of our tongues, and yet Jesus came and was thirsty for us, verse 21. We deserve to be alienated and alone and separated from all comfort, verse 20, but Jesus was alienated for us. Jesus suffered through his own Psalm 69 experience and a thousandfold more. Jesus was afflicted and in pain, verse 29, a thousand times more than David ever was, so that we might be saved from hell. And his affliction and pain, verse 29, along with his resurrection, verse 29b, and along with his faith with which he undertook it all, verse 30, surely pleased the Lord. Verse 31, better than an ox or a young bull. Psalm is about Jesus. Bearing shame, verse 7. And scoffing rude, verse 12. In my place, condemned he stood, verse 21. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And what a psalm. Speaks on behalf of David who wrote it. It speaks on behalf of God's persecuted people everywhere. It can't even be taken on our own lips, expressive of our own sufferings and our own prayers. But most marvelous of all, Psalm 69 speaks of our Savior, Jesus, the man of sorrows.